the word of the Lord says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to him, to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. From Sunday, as we get ready for Holy Week, I pray that you would prepare your hearts for this coming Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Amen. Before I start this morning, Rob asked me if he could give an update on one of our missionaries that's in Southeast Asia. So I'll hand it over to Rob really quick. Yeah, so we've been praying for Jeff and Rachel for a long time. Um, so Jeff reached out a few weeks ago and uh, looking for some prayer warriors. And so as a church, we've been praying for them for a long time, uh, but now we're officially a prayer partner uh, to their missionary group over there in Southeast Asia. So halfway across the world on a small board is our name, uh, and it's just an encouragement to them and their family. So I ask you to join me to pray for Rachel and, and Jeff and their kids and their whole group over there in Southeast Asia. Um, some specific prayers this morning. Uh, they are coming back to the States in two weeks. Uh, they'll be flying into Dallas. And they'll spend about eight weeks here doing stuff with their organization. Uh, a lot of travel stuff between Texas and Tennessee and back and forth. So praying all about that. And then in that area of the world, this time of year with Easter and stuff coming up, uh, there's a lot of uh, heightened stuff that goes on over there. So they had actually a church on the other side of their island, thank God, that got bombed uh, a couple days ago. And so a lot of that activity happens around these Christian holidays. So... Just keep them in your prayers. I'm excited to be part of a church that prays for our missionaries, and uh, just thank you so much for that. Rob, will you pray for them before yeah, we get absolutely. started this morning? Let's pray for the missionaries, Rob and his, or Jeff and his wife this morning and family. Hey, Father, Lord, just so grateful to be in your house this morning during this Easter season, Lord, and just specifically this morning we lift up Rachel and Jeff and their ministry in Southeast Asia, Lord, for all the people over there that are reaching out to those that have never heard your name before. Lord, they don't even know who you are or what you've done for us. Uh, and Lord, it's not a safe place all the time. So, Lord, we just, first of all, ask for your hand of protection on all those people that are over there uh, that have the boldness to profane your name and to spread your word to those people that are in so need. And, Lord, I just lift up Jeff and Rachel as they prepare to come back to the States. Lord, if you just work out all the logistics with travel and transportation uh, and everything it takes to get a uh, family of five from halfway around the world back to the States, Lord. They're excited to come back and see many people that are praying for them. 
So, Lord, I ask for your hand of protection and safety on them. Work out all the details with COVID and all the extra stuff that they're required to do to even come back to this campus. So, Lord, again, just thank you for their ministry. Lord, thank you for their heart for you. And, Lord, just let us as Powell's Chapel Baptist Church just pour out our prayers for them and lift them up on a daily and weekly basis. Lord, just ask all these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for that update. Well, here we are. We come to the conclusion of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, where we'll be this morning. We'll be looking at uh, probably some of the more famous words in the book where uh, Joseph's brothers come to him, and in doing so, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. But just as a recap, where we've been for the last 19 months or so, remember it started back in the beginning, in the beginning, God. Uh, I, I love how that's how God's word starts. God's word does not start with us, humanity. God's word starts with him himself, and he's shown us that to be true throughout this study. Really what we've been looking at throughout this whole thing is the promises of God, that God had made us a promise after we fell, after we rebelled against him. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God had told them, this is the way I want you to live life, to have life to the full. And you can have everything in this garden that I've given to you, but there's one thing you must not eat of. And remember what happened. The serpent came and tempted Eve, and in tempting Eve, she took of the fruit and ate of the fruit. And in that moment, it says that she handed it off to Adam, and he ate of the fruit. And in that moment, their eyes became open to see things they had never seen before. And then they were going to experience death. There had been no death up until that point, that there was been no promise that death would ever come to mankind or to anything that God had created. But when sin enters the picture, we know that death enters with it. And yet God in his sovereignty and his goodness and his kindness to mankind, he said in Genesis chapter 3, that, that he would bring about a seed or a child or a man that would come and redeem all of God's people. That, that he would send a Messiah or a Savior to redeem them in such a way that they could be back in right relationship with God. That what Adam and Eve had experienced in the garden before the fall, that mankind would be able to experience that again. We get to experience that here on this earth. If you're a believer, you have intimacy with God. Because of what Christ Jesus did for you on the cross, that's what we'll celebrate all next weekend. From his death, to his resurrection. It's because of his death and resurrection that we get to even have intimacy with God. But praise God, it's just not for this short time that he's given to us. As James says, your life is but a vapor. But it's because of what Christ Jesus did and because of the promise God gave to us, we'll get to spend all of eternity with God. Amen? And we've been seeing that throughout the process of Genesis. That he made a promise to Abraham that he would be fruitful and multiply and out of Abraham's seed the Messiah would come we saw that all the way up till last week where uh, the, the patriarch Jacob begins to bless his 11 children and blessing his 11 children he rises up Judah out of the mix and says Judah you will be where the Messiah comes from the scepter will never depart from your hand that's where the Messiah will come from and now here we are in chapter 50 we will talk about now what Joseph encounters, but what Joseph promises us, and what we see in Joseph in Christ Jesus at the end of the chapter. 
So as a way of recap, just for a second, we are in this moment. We're at the deathbed of Jacob. Jacob has just blessed all of his children, both some with blessings and some with curses. And we see in the very end of uh, chapter 49 that Jacob dies. And that's where we begin our story. That's where we begin our lesson this morning. It says this, the first three verses are about the burial preparations of the great patriarch Jacob. It says, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. We see right off the bat Joseph's sadness for his father. Remember that beloved relationship they had. That, that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other children. And now these last 17 years they had been reunited. They, they had been separated for many, many, many decades. And in the last 17 years, They'd been reunited, and they'd fallen back into a deep, intimate relationship. And so we see right off the bat the great sadness of Joseph as he prepares his father for his burial. And he weeps over his father. But then there's this subtle request from Joseph as he prepares the body in verses 2 and 3. He says this, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, or Jacob. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. The Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. And so now we see the preparation begin. Thirty long days. Forty long days of embalming this body, to prepare this body to enter into a grave. And what we don't know, but many scholars believe this, that the embalming process was really invented by the Egyptians. And what the Egyptians believed to be true was they wanted to preserve the body as best as possible so that there would be a true resurrection. They didn't believe that that body would die. So they thought if we could just preserve this body as best as possible, when they rise from the dead, then they'll have all their parts, they'll look normal. And so they did whatever they could to make sure they preserved the body at best. But there's this one word in there that shows us that Joseph did not believe in that process. Instead of having the, the Egyptians do it, the, the, the necromancers or the magicians of the day do it, he chose the doctors of the day, the physicians to come and embalm. Because he did not believe, they, they say this, because he chose the physicians to do it, they would have done it in a more um, medical way than a more ceremonial way. And so the physicians prepared the body for his death. And then it says this, for 70 days, the Egyptians wept for him. I believe that for him is for Joseph, but also for Jacob. 70 days, almost two and a half months of weeping. I think about that for a moment. The respect that that man was shown, both Joseph and Jacob. Remember, Jacob had saved Egypt from a crisis. Remember that there was a dream that, 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 that Joseph had. And in doing so, Joseph had this dream. And Joseph was going to save e Egypt from their crisis, their famine. And so now when Jacob comes to the picture, there's this celebration. And Egypt now sees how Joseph and Jacob had saved them. And so they weep and weep and weep. Many scholars believe this, that 
that that's two days shy of what the Egyptians would have celebrated or wept for a pharaoh. It would have been a 72-day mourning period. So think about that for a moment. Two days shy of the weeping that it would have occurred for a king. In doing my studies this week, and if you know anything about World War II, there was a, a great hero that rose out of England. His name was Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was a statesman. He loved his country. He loved England just about more than anything else in his life. He's one of the rare men in all of England to have a true statesman or a royal funeral. Only the royals would have royal funerals, but Queen Elizabeth, seeing all that that man had done for her country, she laid his body in thousands and thousands of people for weeks to come and pay tribute. That is the scene that we get here, that they saw this man as such a part of their country, though he was a foreigner, but what they had done for him and how they had saved him. So now that the great preparation is over, now that the embalming is over, now that the 70 days is over, we now see the burial. But this is going to be like no other burial in Egypt. Because as you remember, what Jacob asked of Joseph was what? I do not want to be buried in that foreign land. In other words, we would say here, get me out of that place. Get my bones out of that place. I do not want to be buried there. I want to be buried where God had made us a promise because I'm going to hold God to his promises. And if I'm buried there, I won't get to see the promises of God, but my bones will get to see the promises of God being buried in the land. So now we see the burial. We see Joseph asking for permission in verse 4. Turn with me in verse 4. It says this, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father has made me swear, saying, I am about to die in, a, in my tomb, that I hemmed out of it for myself in the land of Canaan. Therefore shall you bury me. So the request is this. Joseph can't even go before Pharaoh, and that, that seems odd because Pharaoh and Joseph are tight. Pharaoh and Joseph, Joseph was Pharaoh's right-hand man. But for whatever reason, Joseph sent a messenger to Pharaoh to ask for permission to leave Egypt. To get out of Egypt, to hold to the promises that he made to his father that he would not bury his bones in a foreign pagan land, but in the land of promise. So he makes his request known through a messenger. And then the message comes back in verse 6. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up and buried his father. And look who comes with Joseph on this journey to bury his father. So Joseph went up. You can highlight that phrase in your Bible went up. You'll see that in the Exodus story over and over again. There's this going up or there's this leaving, so to speak. So we're already seeing as God is preparing his people through the death of Jacob, and we'll see that in the death of Joseph, this, this scene that God is preparing his people for, the going up and going out of Egypt. So he says, you can go up. And with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, 
as well as all the household of Jacob, his brothers and his father's household, only their children and their father's household, only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Remember, that's where they had settled. And there they went up with him both, chariots and horsemen, and it was a great company. And so here's the three things that we see. We see first the procession of the funeral. You ever been in a procession? In a procession, they always put the 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 distinguished guests in the front, the family in front, those that mattered the most, or those that were closest to the dead. We see that here. And the first that we see is this, Egypt's elite. There's no telling if Pharaoh went up with them, but it says that the household of Pharaoh went up. And so the most distinguished of the land went up to mourn this man after they had already mourned for 70 years. They take this journey to pay more respect to Jacob as well as Joseph, I believe. The next thing that we see is the family. The family goes with them in this procession, the brothers. The only ones that didn't go are the children. I believe that's what we'll see here in a moment. I believe that was Pharaoh's way of holding Joseph to, hey, you've got to get back here. Yes, you can go, but you've got to get back. You, you need to get back here because when you're around, things happen in my country that there's a blessing that happens. And so if you, the blessing leaves, the blessing will leave as well. So I'm going to make sure you come back. There's no doubt that Pharaoh and Joseph would have had many discussions about the promised land. So in this moment, I think here's Pharaoh having this moment of this man can't leave because the blessing can't leave with him. And so he withholds the children. But then look who is at the rear of the procession. It says this. And they went up with him both chariots and horsemen, the military. Not only was he going to hold them to it, he was going to send them with a caravan of people to protect them, but also the military to bring them back. Now, this is a foreshadow of what's going to happen, is it not? If you turn in your Bibles, don't turn there now, but you turn 400 years from that moment. Do you remember the next time where chariots are following Israel? They're chasing them to get them back again. In that one little verse, we see God already foreshadowing what's to come for Israel. Hey, you will depart from this land again. But the next time that you depart from this land, you will no longer be accompanied by the military. The military will be pursuing you to kill you and to bring you back. Then pause there. And let's turn to verse 10. So here's this procession. Here they are going to bury the bones of Jacob. But then there's this odd few verses. Verses 10 and following. And when they had came to the threshing floor of Adad, which was beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a large, a, a great and grievous lamentation and he made the mourning for his father seven days. So in that one verse, why would they mourn again? They had already been mourning for 70 days. 
But here they are on their journey out of Egypt, and they stop at this, what we would say is a random place. If I had a map, I'd show you it's not very random at all. Now, the direct route from Egypt to Canaan was not the way they took. They took the long way around to get to Canaan. But then they stop and they mourn here, and I believe the writer Moses stops and he puts this in God's word for a purpose. It's again to show them the foreshadow of the great journey they would have out of Egypt. Remember when they left Egypt and they wandered for how long in the desert? They didn't take the most direct route to get to the promised land. They ran again. And I believe that Moses, again, is going to remind them already, hey, we've done this journey before. This would be the same exact journey that they took 400 years later. God is going to continue to remind them of what is to come. Does God not do that for us? But God also reminds us of his promises, and we'll get that in the end of the text. So here they are. They're stopped at this city. They have another seven days of lament. And then finally, in verse 12, it says this, Thus the sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, or the promised land, and buried him in the cave of the field, east of Mamre, which Abraham brought, bought the field from Ephron the Hittite to, to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all that had gone up with him to bury his father. But finally, they arrived back at the promised land. Remember, this was the only plot of land that they had owned. Though God had promised them the entire promised land, the only plot that the Israelites or the promised people owned was a burial site. And so Joseph knew, I have to get back to the promised land because the promises of God lie where? In the promised land. And so I've made a promise. I'm going to get the bones of my father back there so that he can rest with the other patriarchs. And so they finally arrive at the promised land. He buries the bones. And then they begin their long journey back to Egypt. And now this is where the story takes quite a twist. Here's the twist in the story. J Jared read it for us. They begin to go back to Egypt. Back to where their home was. And it says this in verse 15, And Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we had done to him. Remember where we started young Joseph's story. Was it not in the desert? Was it not with his brothers plotting a plan? Now at the end of his life, we see the brothers plotting another plan in the desert. This time it's not about their, them killing him, but about him killing them. And I, I wonder that discussion on that journey that day. Like I wonder how many stories they retold about that first story in the desert of them remembering Joseph coming up over the horizon with that coat of many colors. I wonder the banter that went back and forth between the brothers. Man, what if we hadn't have done that? What if we had rescued him? And then somewhere in that banter, it switched to, oh, no, we're in trouble. Like, this guy might kill us. 
We had found favor with him only because our father was still alive. But now he might kill us. What are we going to do to survive? Remember what kind of scoundrel men these were. They were always plotting something. And now here they plot again. They come up with a story. The, The other brothers come up with a story to stay alive. Now I'm not sure how long the journey was back to Egypt. I'm not sure how many days it was until they finally had the courage to present their request to Joseph. But I do know they didn't have enough courage in themselves to do it themselves. Because it says this in verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph. If we can't even go and face Joseph ourselves, we're going to send a messenger boy to Joseph with our message. And the message was simply this. Your father gave us a command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive their transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Now, we kind of read between the lines here a little bit in the text. I think this is something that Jacob would have told directly to Joseph. Would he not? Of all the things he had already shared with him. So I believe that this was not given to the brothers before Jacob died. This was their attempt to use Jacob, their father, to again manipulate Joseph to do something for them. And we know that Joseph sees that and knows their hearts and knows where it's coming from because it says this. It says, Joseph then wept when they spoke. Like all the things that Joseph had done in the, the reuniting of the brothers and the father, all the ways that he had blessed them, all the land that he had given them, all the ways that he had taken care of them, and yet he still sees his brothers wanting to manipulate the process and manipulate him, and he weeps over it. And I'm not sure where in the story he must call the brothers, because it says the brothers also came. Finally, they show up. And again, we're going to see the fulfillment of the dream that he had that put him in jail to begin with. It says this in the text. And his brothers also came. And what did they do? They fell down before him. Remember, that's what got him into the trouble, was that dream that said they would fall down before him. And now here it happens again for the third time in the text. They fall down the way that God had promised it would. He falls down. They fall down. I'm sure at this point, not just Joseph's weeping, but all the brothers are weeping. But Joseph said to them, he makes this declaration. But in the declaration, he brings great comfort to them. Three comforts that we see. No doubt they're terrified. No doubt they have fear because he tells them right off the bat. But Joseph said to them, do not so whatever they're doing as they're laid out before him there's enough in them and enough in joseph to see these are some terrified guys and says to them i'm going to bring you comfort do not fear and this is the reason not to fear he tells three things and i think these three things are for us as well the first is this god is the divine judge he says do not fear for am i in the place of god 
How easy is it for us when we're in relationships with people? Do we not want to play God with them? Am I the only one? And, and when they do harm to us, is it not like, man, I want to get revenge against them? The moment we take on revenge or vengeance, we become God. And what Joseph is saying, I am not God. I have enough of me to understand I am not God. But he has enough understanding of who God is because God has made some promises. We'll see that later on. God said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so for us, when it comes to relationships and when it comes to people harming us, let us not seek revenge because we are not the divine God. God is the divine God. So automatically he takes the focus off of himself and pushes it back where? To God. So first he says he's not the divine judge. Second, he says this. Not only am I not the divine God, he says, yes, you're right, what you did was evil. He acknowledges that part of their story. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Another translation says this, that what you meant for evil, God meant for good for the salvation of many people. And so the next thing that Joseph sees and that we must see is that God is sovereign. That there's nothing outside of the sovereignty of God, not even the evils of man. That God will use the most sinful, heinous things in this world to bring himself glory and to bring himself good for our good. This is what one writer, one of my favorite writers says. John Calvin says this. Whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect. Let me read that quote again. Whatever poison Satan produces, we know evil comes from Satan. Evil does not come from God. So whatever evil that Satan produces, John Calvin says, God turns it into medicine for the elect or for the church or for the believer. So nothing is outside of the sovereignty of God. No cancer cell, no death, no abuse, no addiction, no divorce, no lost child, no lost parent. Everything is under the supremacy of God. I am so grateful we do not have a God that sits in heaven pondering and wondering what's going to happen next. Like for us, this last year has been chaotic at best. But God in his goodness can say to us what Satan meant for evil, he is meant for good. I do not know how God is going to use this last year of this pandemic. I, I do not know is what Rob just prayed. I do not know how a church being bombed in Southeast Asia will be used for the glory of God. I simply must know this and believe this. God is sovereign in control of all things, even the most heinous, evil things. And this is why I know that to be true. And this is why, church, we must know that to be true. He doesn't just do it for the sake of doing it. He does it so just like his brothers, just like what we see. As for you, what you meant against me was evil 
but God meant it for good. How come God meant it for good? The how come is in the passage. It's not just God uses evil for evil for the sake of being evil because he's sovereign. He uses all things for his glory for what? The salvation of people. This ought to remind us of what we'll celebrate next weekend. Remember that Jesus Christ, the most holy man to ever walk the planet, was hated by his own brothers. He was beaten, betrayed, and hung on a cross. That was evil. But what did God use in that evil? God used it for what? What you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about salvation to many people. The cross is the most evilest of things on the planet. But for us, it's the most glorious thing we've ever seen because of our salvation. Amen. That's because of the sovereignty of God. So we see he is not the divine judge. God is. He sees he's not sovereign in control of anything that God is. And lastly, he will extend his kindness. He says, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The last thing that we see, that he extended his kindness. Because he recognized that God was the judge and that God was, was sovereign. Therefore, he must be kind to other people because of the kindness that, of God that was poured out onto him. Church, that must motivate us to show kindness. We are not the judge. We have a judge. And in his kindness to us, because of the cross, we will not be judged the way we ought to be judged. Because that's the sovereignty of God that displayed his love for us on a cross and saved us from our sins. Now, what is the church? We ought to be the most kind-hearted place in the world. My great sadness is this. In talking to many people, both believers and unbelievers, they would say the most harm that they have gotten is not from with outside the walls of the church, but some of their greatest pains have happened inside the walls of the church. I believe that to be true because we think we're the divine judges. I think that's because we think we need to be in control. Therefore, when we do that, we'll show no kindness. We'll try to hold what we have rather than to give away what we have. And so, church, my prayer is this. That we, if you're in a relationship that you're trying to be the divine judge, you'd release that today. And you would let God be God and let his sovereignty reign over all things, even that relationship. And that then you would go and shower them with kindness the way God has been kind to you. And so he shows them kindness. And now we see the death of Joseph. Of all the deaths in the book of Genesis, I would have thought they would have spent the most time on Joseph. But truth be told, they spend the least amount of time of all the deaths stories. But we do see three things in this death story. And so Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Makra, the son of Messiah. 
or counted Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and put him into a coffin in Egypt. Here's what we do know to be true about the tail end of Joseph's life. We know this in Exodus chapter 1. It says this in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So somewhere Joseph had been forgotten. Somewhere in the journey of his rise to fame, Joseph was forgotten in the land of Egypt. And that's what brought about the, the, the rest of Exodus, the people of God being bought into slavery being enslaved for 400 years. But what we know about Joseph, we know these three things to be true. First, he lived a full life. He was 110 years old. He lived most of those in a foreign land, never really getting to see the promises of God come true. But here's what we know about him living a full life. Not only did he live a full life, but he lived a full life of faith. Remember what he says to his brothers. God is going to continue to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He believed that to be true, though he never saw it. He saw it in glimpses, but Joseph never got to spend any time in the promised land. The one time that we see is when he drops off some, a bag of bones. But he believed in the promises of God. He lived by faith. In Hebrews, it tells us that. Hebrews chapter 11. Not only did he live a full life, not only did he live a life full of faith, but the very last verse, it says this. He lived a life full of hope, and it shows us hope. Verse 26, there's this one word, circle it in your Bible. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and they put him into a coffin. Now, the word coffin is a poor, poor translation in our American English text. The true word for that word is an ark. Remember what the ark stood for. The ark is where the promises of God were laid. That's where the Ten Commandments were laid. They carried the ark of God wherever they went. And so they put Joseph in a tomb or in an ark to be carried out of this wicked city. Now, all this points to us that there is a greater Joseph coming. There is a Joseph by the name of Christ Jesus who lived a full life, though he was not 110 years old. He was 33 years old, but he lived a full life. You read the Gospels. Not only did he live a full life, but he lived a life of faith. He knew before he ever showed up on the planet what was going to happen to him. His father had told him, hey, I'm going to send you to this planet. You're going to see these wicked people. These wicked people are going to want to kill you. They're going to kill you. They're going to hang you on a cross. They're going to shove your dead body into a tomb. And yet he believed in the faith of God that God would raise him from the dead. And we see not only does Christ have a full life of hope, 
But that man gives us hope today. The same way where these men would carry these bones as a way of reminding of the promises of God, the hope of God that were going to come. Remember what he had just said to them previously. He had just said to him in verse 24 and 25, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but, circle that in your Bible, God will visit you, and God will bring you up out of this land, the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, we must hold God to the same promises that he made Joseph, that he made to Jacob, that he made to Abraham, that he made to us through Christ Jesus. God will visit us again and bring us into the promised land. This is not the promised land. America is not the promised land. But God will visit us again. He will call all of his children, all of his people back where? To all of eternity with him. You see, in closing the book of Genesis, remember where it starts in the beginning. Remember that it started with death, it ends with death. But there's this promise that God will visit us again and call us to glory. We must hold him to that. Do we have the faith this morning that believes that God is truthful to his promises and God is faithful to his promises? That concludes our series and our study on the book of Genesis. Let me pray for us this morning. God, you've been so kind to us in this study of Genesis. And part of me is amazed that we made it through. At times it felt like we'd never make it through, and other times it felt like we were going too fast. But God, you gave us the book of Genesis as a place of origin where all of our theology can be shaped, where all of our understanding of the doctrine of Christ can be formed, the doctrine of sin is formed, the doctrine of salvation is formed. In so many ways, the doctrine of the church is formed, you choosing a people unto yourself. On and on we can go, just that this one book, these 50 chapters, you have been so gracious and kind to reveal so much to us. I know you've done that in my own life in preparing this for the last 19 months or so. And God, I, I pray that it would continue to bring great awakening to my heart about who you are and who I am. Again, as we close today, we want to remind ourselves of what Joseph said that day. What you meant for evil, Satan. God means it for good, for the salvation of many people. God, you are sovereign in control of all things. Thank you for this last 19 months and this precious, precious pray that you'd continue to use it in our lives. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you would rise for the benediction this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you.
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace to you today. Just two quick announcements I forgot to make at the front end. There is no Wednesday evening services uh, this week due to we will have a Good Friday service at 5.30 on Friday. Uh, so either here in, in the building or online. And lastly, I would encourage you to invite all of your neighbors, your friends, to come and celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus uh, next Sunday here in the building, not online. Like, let's pack this place out, get people off of the television and into the pews. So grace and peace to you today. Amen.